We are back in Luke 17, starting in verse 20. And this is uh, part one of a two-part series on the coming of the kingdom of God. Uh, Luke 17, 20 through 37. Hear the word of God. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here, but do not go out or follow them. For as lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so the Son of Man will be in his day, but, the, but, the, but first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation, just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building, But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed, one will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together, one will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word, uh, your word which is sometimes mysterious and perplexing, this sacred and holy word. Open our hearts now that we might be transformed by the renewing power of Scripture through the power of your Spirit and convict our hearts and convince us of its truth that we might leave differently than the way we came in. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, when you read the Bible, there are big things, big themes that jump out at you. When you read the Bible, there are big themes that jump out at you. And these are themes that emerge over and over again. There are five main themes. From my years in ministry, from my reading and studying, I see five big big themes, five main themes. Monotheism, election, covenant, mediator, and kingdom. Now, of course... The love of God is the single most important idea in Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. But it's not a generic love. The one God demonstrates his covenant love for his people chosen through his mediator. In other words, the love of God is given unique expression through those five big themes. And I'm not the only one who's made that observation. Bright and brilliant theologians far smarter than me have made that observation that those five themes are are mainly the big ones that jump out from Scripture. And of these five themes, the kingdom of God may be the most controversial. 
kingdom of God, the fifth one I mentioned, and those are not necessarily themes in in that order, but the kingdom of God may be the most controversial. Um, Saying the kingdom of God has come doesn't seem to square with the world as we know it. This is one reason why the topic of the kingdom of God is controversial, because when we talk about the kingdom and we look at the world, we go, kingdom of God, really? Mm." Doesn't feel like it, doesn't look like it. Um, If the kingdom of God has come, we think to ourselves, why is there still cancer? Tsunamis, tyranny, oppression, injustice, genocide, child abuse, and massive economic corruption, and that's just a few of the ills in our current world. If the kingdom of God hasn't come, well, what's God waiting on? Why the delay? And so the question of when the kingdom of God would come is a huge question. So what the topic we're talk, talking about this morning from Scripture is a big one. This is a big deal, a really, really big deal. There are things you can miss as you read through Scripture, but this is one you should not miss. So... Pay attention and just say it like that. In verse 20, Jesus is asked by the Pharisees, when will the kingdom of God come? And he gives this answer that may be one of the most dissonant statements in all of the Bible. He says, the kingdom is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, there is the kingdom of God, or look, here is the kingdom of God, For the kingdom of God, he says, is in the midst of you. Now, the reason this statement is so dissonant and confusing is because kingdoms are characterized by monarchs and geopolitical power and militaries and walled cities and fortresses and um, armies and things like that. And so when when Jesus says the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, he's saying that this kingdom, this kingdom of heaven, this kingdom of God, is not going to arrive in the traditional ways people typically expect a kingdom to arrive. Now the question looming over the text is this. What then is the kingdom of God? And in what way, if any, is it present? And I want to answer that in three statements in our sermon this morning. And I want to answer it with these three statements. The kingdom of God is a person. The kingdom is a present and emerging reality. And the kingdom of God is both spiritual and earthly. The kingdom is a person. The kingdom is present and emerging as a reality. And the kingdom is both spiritual and earthly. So let's unpack it. Number one, the kingdom of God is a person. The idea that, perhaps the idea that gave the ancient Israelites the most anxiety was that God's reign seemed limited to within Israel's borders. Okay? God didn't seem like the God of the whole, the whole world. He didn't seem like the God of the whole earth uh, because the nations were under the power of pagan deities. And a lot of these pagan nations were much greater than the nation of Israel. In other words, if Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the 12 tribes, was really the God of all creation, then why were the Babylonians so strong? 
Why were their temples so much more powerful and well-funded? You know, why were the Egyptians with their pyramids you know, a superpower? It was kind of this like nagging anxiety about your God. You know, you like the small God complex. Even though scripture proclaimed that no, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was the God of the whole world, there was this anxiety that if God ruled and reigned, it only seemed that that rule and reign was limited to within the borders of the ancient kingdom or nation of Israel. So this was a problem. If God reigns, if you reign, God, why are the heathen nations raging? That was the question in Psalm 2, right? Why do the heathen rage? And so the hope and longing reflected in the prophets was that one day God will become king, not just of that tiny piece of real estate in the Middle East, but over the whole world. The hope of the prophets, the longing of God's people was that one day that rule and reign and power would extend visibly beyond the borders of tiny little Israel. And the hope and longing reflected in the prophets was that one day God's rule and reign would extend over the whole earth. Habakkuk 2.14 says, The knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. The prophets anticipated this coming day when the knowledge of God would, would cover the whole world. Isaiah 52 and 7, They will know my name when the one who brings good news proclaims salvation to Zion and says, Your God reigns. The cumulative hope and anticipation of the people, God's ancient people and the prophets, was that God's reign and rule would be on display globally, not just in that tiny slice of the world we know as Israel and Judea. And by the time you get to the New Testament, the focus of the rule and reign of God has become a spear tip, and it's at the center of all of Jesus' parables about the kingdom of God. Because at the center of the New Testament's parables about the kingdom of God stands a person. And in this person's action and character is the meaning of the kingdom of God. And so there's this dissonance, the worldly conception of what a kingdom is, the biblical concept of what, of what a kingdom is, and a particular person embodying everything the kingdom of God is and will be and represents. In and through Jesus, God becomes king. That's, that's the idea. That's, that's number one uh, takeaway. In and through Jesus, God is becoming king. Herman Ritterbos, in his 1962 book, The Coming of the Kingdom, says, the manifestation of the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God is the same thing, cannot be conceived of as an impersonal metaphysical event, but as the coming of God himself as king. In other words, it's not this nebulous idea of maybe just God's authority and power, but the idea that God himself is becoming king. Now, right now, you might be thinking, I don't know, you know, I mean, God created all things. He already was king. Yes and no. In the cosmic kind of secret sense, of course God reigns over all the cosmos. But in the sense that that rule and reign is manifested in people's hearts, minds, and in their eyes, that had not happened before the coming 
of Jesus, his son. I mentioned Psalm 2 a moment ago that says, why do the heathen rage? Well, the very next verse, God says, I have installed my king on Zion. In other words, that, that, that God's answer to the raging of the heathen nations is to establish his power through a coming one. So back to the original point, the kingdom is a person. Through the ministry and message of Jesus, through the lordship of Jesus Christ, God himself is coming, becoming king. Jesus says in verse 20, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Now this might seem obvious, but it's not so obvious. When Jesus says the kingdom is in your midst, pointing to himself. The kingdom is among you. Hello. That's essentially what Jesus is saying. The kingdom is in your midst. The kingdom is among you. He's pointing to himself. Now, the King James Version, you may have grown up on like I did, where it says the kingdom of God is within you, but really it could be translated, should be translated, the kingdom of God is within your midst. When Jesus says the kingdom is in your midst, he's asserting two things. One, it's already arrived, so that answers the question of timing. And two, he himself is the one that's in their midst. The kingdom is in your presence right now, Jesus is saying, as we speak, the kingdom is a person, the kingdom is Jesus, so that's number one. Number two, second thing I want us to see is that the kingdom is a present and emerging reality. Now, in Matthew 13, Jesus gives two very important parables. To me, they're two of the most important parables of all the parables Jesus gives, and it's the parable about the mustard seed and the parable uh, about uh, the leaven or the yeast. And they're back to back in Matthew 13, 31 through 33. And he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it's grown, it's larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Okay? And then the kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. And the powerful point in both of those parables is that the kingdom starts off small. The kingdom comes without much fanfare. The kingdom's arrival comes without much to see. It doesn't come blasting through the doors with huge explosions like a Michael Bay movie. It comes quietly at first. Subtly, it comes through the door. And there's not much to see. Back to Jesus' words, the kingdom of God does not come with observation. Now the Greek word used there is, is used mostly to refer to observations in the stars. In other words, in the ancient world, in fact, farmers' almanacs up, up until just 100 years ago, the almanac often had to do with planting and, and crops in relation to signs in the stars. And so the idea that the arrival of something like the kingdom of God would come with associative signs in the stars and the heavens was a common expectation, and Jesus saying, that's not it. It's not going to come that way either. So the kingdom comes small. The mustard seed and the yeast begin a process that take time to see and is often imperceptible 
but over time emerges to the point where it's impossible to deny. All right? So the kingdom is a present reality and it's an emerging reality. Which means in Jesus' ministry, the idea that God's kingdom had arrived was really laughable to most people on the street. But what Jesus is pointing to is the fact that its arrival doesn't negate the fact that there's more to come, if I can put it that way. That makes sense. So it has come and is coming. And when Jesus tells the disciples in the Lord's Prayer to pray, thy kingdom come, I don't know if any of us here have really stopped to take time to think about what that represents. We just think, wow, it's a good thing to pray. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But what Jesus is actually saying is, no, no, no. Pray that the kingdom comes more and more every single day. When you pray, you are to pray for the manifestation of the kingdom to come on earth, as it is in heaven, more and more and more. In other words, the rule, the reign of God, the will of God, the power of God, which is established perfectly in the heavenly realm, we are to be praying for that to come down to earth every single day, more and more and more. It's an emerging reality. It's supposed to be an emerging reality. And God manifests the kingdom through the spirit-empowered work of the church. And someone say, well, are you saying we bring the kingdom? No, God brings the kingdom, but he brings the kingdom through the spirit-empowered work of the church. God is manifesting the kingdom through what we do, which means what you do now matters. Your work, your life, your finances, your home, your neighbors, how you treat people, it all matters here and now. I said a couple weeks ago when I was talking about the rich man and Lazarus that heaven is not where it matters that you treat people nice. Heaven, you know, the age to come, that's going to be established perfectly. Mercy and compassion and justice and all of those things matter now, in this life, right now, right here. It matters what you do. It matters what you say. It matters how you treat people. It matters what comes out of your mouth. That's why it's so important for the church to be what God calls it to be, a community of grace, a community of love, and a community of righteousness. Now, it's popular today to emphasize how love sets us apart, but love is not the biggest challenge we have in our world today, because praise God, a lot of people have a pretty high view of love, although it's distorted in many ways. The challenging thing is there's this whole righteousness aspect, the idea that that the church, people who are proclaiming the kingdom are living in a way that is holy to the world. There's this distinct nature of what people in the kingdom ought to be so that when people in the world see the kingdom of God represented, they're seeing something that is unique and different. You know, when the children of Israel went into the promised land, God tells Joshua and the Israelites to be different than the Canaanites and the pagans. They were to be a people on display, distinct, called out from the world. And in many ways, we're just like our neighbors who don't believe. We go to work, we put our you know, pants on one leg at a time, and we have so much in common with them. And in other ways, we're completely distinct because there's, certain, there's a certain way we live that, man, that demonstrates that heaven The kingdom of heaven is coming down to earth in and through his people and in and through the church. 
In Exodus 19 and 6, God says, So God says to Moses, Tell the house of Jacob and the house of Israel this. If you keep my covenant, you will be for me a kingdom of priests. Interesting. He doesn't say a kingdom of warriors, right? Like Sparta, you know. Everyone, all the men in Sparta are trained for warfare. That's a kingdom in the worldly concept. But, but God says to Moses, tell the house of Jacob that they're to be a kingdom of priests. A group of people pointing the world to God. A group of people living out God's rule and reign right here and right now. And this brings me to my final point. The kingdom is both spiritual and earthly. Now, there's some tension here to this because we've already established that the kingdom is not a worldly kingdom. It is not a geopolitical empire as we think of kingdoms, right? You think Lord of the Rings, you know, Rohan and, you know, Aragorn and all those guys. You think, now that's a kingdom, right? And I mean, you're thinking of kingdom. I'm thinking of those things because I love Lord of the Rings. So we've, but we've established that it's not that kind of kingdom, but we fall into a trap if we think, well, Jesus reigns on the throne of our hearts, as if to say or relegate the kingdom to just being purely a spiritual reality. It's just about private religion. It's not that either. Well, what are we talking about? Well, if you know anything about the debates, and I don't want to get too deep into this, but I'm going to touch on it because we have to a little bit. You know anything about the debates over the purported thousand-year reign of Christ, you know that there are two sides, there are two predominant views. It's not the only view, but there are two predominant views, okay? One view insists on an entirely future and literal millennial kingdom where Christ reigns on earth for a thousand years in a literal earthly future kingdom, They look around at this broken world, and um, they say, if this is the kingdom, you know, count me out, right? There's no way this can be the kingdom. The kingdom is future. It's yet to come. Uh, And for this camp, the kingdom has not really come, maybe in some spiritual way, but it has not really come, not in its most fundamental sense. The other view insists on an entirely realized millennial kingdom and sees the kingdom of God as an entire spiritual reality. And they would want to say, no, the kingdom is here. It exists. It's with us. It's just invisible. It's entirely spiritual. And there's, there's something to affirm positively about both of these views. One wants to recognize that in some way, what happened in Jesus' life and ministry introduced the kingdom of God. The other one wants to say, but this can't be all there is. And we want to say yes to both of those statements. I want to proffer a third view. This view of the kingdom of God understands the millennial kingdom, um, as it were, has indeed come and continually comes like the mustard seed growing to become a very large tree, like the yeast put in three measures of meal, as they call it, I mean, lumps of dough, which ultimately permeates the whole loaf, but it takes time. Through a process of maturation and growth, often imperceptibly, but nevertheless constantly at work, constantly growing, 
every day, day in and day out. And this is what theologians call the already and not yet paradigm of the kingdom. Maybe you've heard of this. The kingdom has come and continues to come more and more as the gospel of the kingdom is established on earth through the prayerful spirit-empowered preaching of the good news. The kingdom has come and it comes more and more and more until one day it will fill up the whole world. The kingdom is here, but not in its fullness. We pray every day that kingdom come and it comes more and more. This view believes that the kingdom arrived in power in Jesus' ministry and death on the cross, but through the church's mission, as I just mentioned, to the world, the world itself transforms in some fundamental way. It is not just the future hope of heaven. That is not simply what the kingdom is. We're proclaiming salvation for one day when you die. That's the kingdom. It is not just that. It is the fact that through the power of the gospel, the world is in some way being changed, restored to God's original good plan from the very beginning that was thrown off course. The kingdom says that sin doesn't have the last word, that Satan doesn't have the last word, that the coldness and the darkness of this world, the forces of darkness and injustice and oppression and hatred will not have the last word, and God is committed to this world. The message is not, God says, this world's toast, and one day the clock's going to wind up, and I'm just going to blow the whole thing up and start over. That is not what I see in Scripture. What I see in Scripture is God saying he's committed to this world. The fact that God became a man, born in the law, in the life of Jesus, means that he's committed to the salvation of this project, if I can put it, put it that way. And this is definitely an optimistic view, I admit. Some people are uncomfortable with that. Which believes that God has not abandoned the world to sin and Satan. That the knowledge of the Lord truly is covering the earth as the waters cover the sea, or it will, if it hasn't yet. Now, if the timeline of this world is done now, then we could say that that project has failed. If we look out and say, doesn't look like the world's getting any better, I'll say I agree with you in many senses. But if... If we take God's timeline, who has a very long view of history, and the future is open in terms of we don't, we don't know when the Lord's return is. It could be tonight. It could be in 5,000 years from now. It could be 100,000 years from now. The project is not a failure. God is at work. The knowledge of the Lord truly is and will cover the earth as promised in the book of Isaiah as the waters cover the sea through the church's mission to the world. That like it says in Revelation 11.15, Revelation 11.15, the kingdoms of this world are becoming the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The kingdoms of this world are becoming the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever, which means that every empire that exalts itself above the knowledge of God is cut down. And even right now, if it seems like there are nations or powers that are puffing themselves up, just know this, that every kingdom was winning until the day it lost. Every rebel power in this world seems like it's winning until the day that God cuts its legs out right from under it. And he does it over and over and over again throughout history. 
You know, during those 80 years of the Soviet Union, it seemed hopeless, like communism was spreading, religion was being crushed, Christians were being killed and persecuted. And for 80 long years, it seemed like this power was unstoppable, it wasn't going away. It was the herald that this project on earth was scrapped. And one day, it fell. And just like every kingdom before it, that happens. Why? Because God is on the move always, even when it doesn't seem like it. God's always on the move, and I want to say to you in your life right now, whatever is going on, you need to know that God is on the move. God is at work. In and through you, in your life, he's committed to you. He loves you, he cares, and his will will be done, and all things are working together for your good and to those that love God and are called according to his purpose. God is on the move. The kingdom is a present reality. It's present and it's emerging. The Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper said, one of my favorite quotes of all time, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, the sovereign Lord over all, does not cry, mine. Which means wherever the activity of the Holy Spirit is, there is the kingdom. When secular people unwittingly fulfill God's plans, the kingdom is present. You're thinking, hmm? When atheist engineers put together a plan to build a skyscraper that stands up against earthquakes and fires and you know, tornadoes to protect human life, the kingdom is at work. Thinking back to God's original plan to cause the earth to flourish. When scientists make breakthrough medical discoveries that eradicate disease, there is the kingdom. When Jim Crow laws that discriminate against African Americans are overturned, sometimes by the work of secular people, there is the kingdom of God because all truth is God's truth. Mathematical truth, scientific truth, medical truth. All truth is God's truth. Now, you may be thinking, and I don't have much more time, well, this kind of sounds like a social gospel, doesn't it? Are you saying that as long as good things happen in the world, we should just be satisfied with that? No. But we ought not to be so tied down into a narrow view of what the kingdom is by thinking it's just making sure people get good religions so they can go to heaven when they die. We ought to have a, a broader category of the kingdom's work. I asked, a, I asked a dozen pastors, tell me in one sentence, what is the kingdom? I mean, I had my own opinion, but I did some homework this past week. And good, solid, faithful pastors said to me, most of them, wherever the Spirit is at work. Is the church the kingdom of God? It's the clearest manifestation of the kingdom on earth, but it's not only the kingdom is not just limited to its borders. Every good and perfect gift is given from above and comes down from the Father of lights, which means that God is blessing and moving in ways sometimes that Christians are not even involved in. So when Jesus says the kingdom is not coming in ways that can be observed, it's not just a statement for the Pharisees, but for us too, 
Because even when you can't see what God is up to, it doesn't mean he's not working. The kingdom of God is active, it's flourishing, even in the midst of hardship. The kingdom of God is with us, and we are working in it and for it. I'll close with this verse from Hebrews 12, 28. Since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have brought the kingdom and you're bringing the kingdom. That the kingdom is a present reality because of Jesus. The meaning of the kingdom is found in his words and in his ministry and in his gospel and the reign from heaven. Your powerful, cosmic, sovereign reign over all things is spreading itself out in the earth through the message of the gospel of Christ. Help us to recognize your kingdom. Help us to be a part of the kingdom. Help us to work in the kingdom. And help us, O oh God, to rejoice that it has come and is coming. In Jesus' name.